Thank you, Pat. You may be seated. And as you are being seated, I just want to say good morning to you. What a gift it is to be to be together this morning. Uh, my name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here at uh, City Church, and uh, so grateful to see all of you. I, um, like Kyle, I look out and I see uh, many faces that I do not know, and so I, I periodically do this. I, I remind you that uh, at the end of our gathering, I'll be down front and I'll invite you to come forward, and um, that makes everyone really nervous to come forward, and I get that. And so uh, this morning, uh, instead of coming forward and me being here, as soon as we're done, um, I am going to be in the cafe next to the coffee bar, and if you're new, you know my name now. It's not fair that I wouldn't have an opportunity to know your name, and so I'd love for you to just stop by, just tell me your name, let, let us uh, maybe have a quick cup of coffee. We'd love to say good morning to you, so that's where I'll be at the end of the service and would love an opportunity to say hello. Um, if you are new, we are in a study in the book of Hebrews and um, are going to pick up in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5, if you want to turn there. Uh, last week we began or uh, looked at verses 1 through 4 of chapter 2 and on Easter Sunday morning began this study in the book of Hebrews. And uh, just as a quick review of what we are reading and studying, Hebrews uh, is written to a group of Christians, Jewish Christians, more than likely it's believed, most likely that they are a small house church, a small group of believers who are uh, in Rome um, and being persecuted as a result of their being in Rome. And so they are very isolated and um, perhaps feeling very discouraged and even, you know, potentially in some ways forgetting all that Christ has done. And as a result of that, the author of Hebrews, we don't know exactly who it is. There's a lot of theories of who could have written this uh, letter to this church. Um, that is not what is most important. We do know it's God's word to these people to encourage them in their faith as they walk in this season of hardship and challenge. And he begins this letter by reminding them and elevating in chapter 1 the bigness of Jesus, his power and his might and who he is and all that he has done. Um, and as we got into chapter 2 last week, um, we, he, he sort of takes a quick aside from this story that he's telling about who Jesus is and all that he's done. And he says, this Jesus secured for you a salvation that I don't want you to forsake too quickly. Don't forget what he has done for you. And don't waver away from the message that he delivered to you. And we talked about that idea of being a ship on the sea and keeping our bearings and anchored and, and, and walking towards Christ and our eyes on Christ so that we don't drift away and that we don't do that intentionally. We don't drift away on purpose. It's when we take our eyes off Jesus that we do that. And so he kind of gave that aside in verses one through four of, hey, keep your eyes on Jesus. And now he's returning in the end of chapter two, verses five through 18, to continue illustrating or demonstrating what Jesus has done, who he is, the bigness of Christ. And as um, we started this, I told you my friend Jared Wilson, who often prays before he preaches, Jesus be big. And that is the hope of this message. Jesus is greater is the sort of subheading that we've put on this study in the book of Hebrews is to remind us that Jesus is greater than all things. He's greater than all other sources of hope and joy and salvation or whatever we might be searching for. He's also greater than any of the enemy's attacks against us or anything that would try to dissuade us from believing that we have hope in our future. But here in verses 5 through 18 specifically, he begins to answer the question of almost, so what? So Jesus is big. Jesus is great. Jesus is 
who the world was created for and through and by. Why does that matter to me and to you? Why does it matter that Jesus is big? I don't know about you, but I, I have conversations, I hope you do, with friends, family, sometimes coworkers. And in those conversations, they often will lead to conversations about life and the big things of life. Even the idea of heaven sometimes can come up. And isn't it interesting that most people I, I ever have a conversation with, whether they profess to be Christian or would be on the other end of the spectrum where they deny Christ, perhaps even denying God, and yet there is this intrigue and this interest in understanding God and understanding what he has done or what he is doing. And conversations specifically about heaven really get interesting because there's this interest, there's this hope that maybe there is something more than just this life. Maybe there is something bigger going on. It's no wonder that all the books and the movies about heaven, they're bestsellers, right? You put a movie out about heaven, it's going to be packed out. Doesn't matter how true or just ridiculous it is. Mostly ridiculous, by the way. But put a book out about it. Everybody wants to read about heaven, wants to read about what is happening. And, the, and, the, and at the heart of that is this interest in understanding what is going on. Everyone, even as they suppress and deny attempt potentially to deny God, there's this desire to, to believe and the hope that maybe there is something bigger. Maybe there's something going on. And even when the sinfulness of this world has injured someone so much that they can't believe in God, they can't fathom that God could be real and allow this world to exist in the way that it does, there's still this longing that you can unpack in those conversations to try and understand this life to understand why things are the way they are. But for those of us who are Christians, who have read our Bibles, who through the grace of Christ have been raised to new life, we know that there is a hope for us. There is this eternal future that we have because of Jesus. And so when we ask and are contemplating the question, what does it matter that Jesus is big? Why does it matter that he is greater? It matters because it's through him that our future is secured. It's through him that we do have any hope in the midst of all of the challenges and the pains of this world. Again, keep in mind the original hearers of this letter, they are regularly being persecuted for what they believe and for following Jesus, and they're being tempted to fall away from him and keeping their eyes on him, and that's why the author had to give this warning. Don't neglect this, friends. Don't mistake this. Keep your eyes on Jesus. And here, he begins to answer the question in some ways, how is it possible that this big Jesus gives us the hope that we all have. Some ways this message is going to drive a few of you a little bit crazy because it's going to be a little bit of a systematic theology. Why does God do the things he does and how has he accomplished the things that he has accomplished? Those big questions about God. And so far, if we look at the book of Hebrews, just in these first few chapters, couple of chapters, I'd introduce to you three primary characters that the author has used to illustrate what he is teaching. The first is the angels. We saw that in 
chapter 1, after talking about Jesus as the radiance of the glory of God, through whom and by whom all things were created, all this bigness of Jesus. In verse 5, he then contrasts him to the angels, says, For whom did he say, the, uh, uh, for, to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I've begotten you? He contrasts, he begins to contrast the angels and Jesus, recognizing that the angels, angelic beings, were perceived to be from God and trusting that they must have this power. And so, and yet, even in all their power, they were less than Jesus. The second character or people that we might uh, see in this story is mankind, all of us. And when we think about mankind and what has happened in the story of mankind, in the big picture history, we know that God created the world. He created man, Adam and Eve, placed them in the garden, placed them in creation and said, rule over creation, take dominion over it. And then, of course, Satan came in, screwed that all up, asked that question, did God really say? And immediately, our first father and mother began to fall into sin, and they asked the question that we still ask ourselves, did God really say? They began to try and set themselves up as their own God, rather than yielding to the God who placed them in the garden. So we have mankind and angels, and then Jesus and in God's perfect timing, God sent his son, having that sin entered the world and the relationship between God and man had been broken and broken. And so he sends Jesus and Jesus comes to restore man to his proper place of rule. And how does he do that? And that's what he illustrates for us. And he uses this psalm that Pat read for us Psalm 8 to describe it. And so this text that we are looking at in verses 5 through 18 is in some ways an exposition of Psalm 8 and specifically the middle of the psalm where it says, What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. The psalmist prior to that section had marveled at the bigness of God. Look at all of creation. Look what God has done, and he has placed us to rule over this creation. And how amazing is it that God would give us this playground to live in and to rule over. This is what he does to, for us. And as we read through this psalm, through the lens of this idea of marveling at what God has done, we will begin to grasp all that God has done through Christ. I don't know if any of you have ever moved before. I moved all the time when I was younger. Uh, we've moved quite even regularly since we moved to Melissa. Um, pray for my wife. And, <clears throat> but when our boys were younger, and you might remember this, I remember doing this as a child, and I remember sort of the joy that I experienced even as I watched my boys do this. We'd walk into the new house, the new apartment, wherever it might be, and I would run. They would run to their rooms. And, the, and I say their rooms. They didn't know what was their room, but they would just run to a room. And they would yell out, this room's mine. And they would claim it. And they would say, this is it. And they'd start talking about, I'm going to put the bed over here, and the Legos are going to go over there, and I'll hang Dirk's picture over here, and, you know, all these sorts of things. They, they, they begin to, what do they do? They begin to take dominion over this little area that they believe is going to be theirs, that they want to rule over. No girls allowed right there. 
They're doing what they were created to do, taking dominion, ruling over creation. And the psalmist has marveled that God would give us this role. But then, as he marvels at this, at the end of verse 8, the second half of verse 8, he says this, now putting, now in putting everything in subjection to him, and I'm going to explain what he's saying there. He left nothing outside of his control, but here's an interesting comment. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. So the psalmist has marveled at how God is big and he's, you know, place man over all of creation, and, 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 that's, and it's an amazing thing that God would allow us to have this place. The author of Hebrews now goes back and takes this psalm, and takes that little section about sort of that God would be mindful of, of us as human beings, and he says, and yet, we know that is true, I believe what the psalmist says, but yet we don't see it yet. We don't yet see everything, even though in putting everything in subjection to him, he's talking about Jesus there. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Man was intended to rule over creation. We were created to do that. Sin entered in and caused a problem and broke our relationship with God. Jesus came to fix that. And he came to restore us, you and I, to our rightful place of ruling over creation. And yet we wait because we don't see that happening yet. And so the author of Hebrews talking to this group of believers who are struggling with this not seeing it yet, all of the hardships and the suffering and the pain of this, this life, he's encouraging them, remember who Jesus is, remember his bigness, and remember what he has done. And even though you don't see it yet, believe that it will happen, it has happened, he will save. So, in verses 10 through 18, he essentially unpacks this exposition of this question, what has Jesus done? What is he doing? How is it possible that he's able to save? If we go back to verse 5, and I know I've been jumping around here for you, and that's why I said some of our, you know, if you need to take notes very much in order, I apologize. But this is on purpose. In verse 5, he began, for it was not to angels. Again, he returns back to this conversation of contrasting Jesus and angels. It was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. It wasn't the angels that were going to rule. No. It has been testified somewhere, and I love that he just says somewhere, <laughs> What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. And he goes to this psalm where he asks this question. He says, it wasn't to the angels, although you revere them and you think of them as high and in some sort of authority, it wasn't to the angels that he said, look at what I have done and I am aware of you and I am mindful of you. He said that to us as mankind. And so... Picking back up now down to 10, where he's explained that this psalm is ultimately about Jesus. He's going to explain why and how Jesus is the only one able to save. Verse 10, for it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist. Connecting back to chapter 1, where he says in verse 2, but in these last days he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He's continuing to elevate the bigness of Jesus and the power of Jesus. It was fitting that Jesus, 
that through whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory and bringing us sons and daughters to glory, what did he have to do? He would make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. These believers in Rome, this small little house church, they are suffering. And he says to them, the author of your salvation, that, that word you notice I changed from founder to author. Some of your translations use author. Founder is a better word because he is the foundation of salvation. That's a better translation of what that means. The foundation of our salvation, he was able to do that, secure that for us through suffering, through his suffering. Now, obviously, there is one word in there that is somewhat confusing, that it says that he should make the founder of their salvation. We know he's speaking of Jesus there, perfect through suffering. That doesn't mean that Jesus lacked anything. What he's saying there is that he made him the perfect atonement, the perfect Savior through suffering. He was shown to be the only one who could save through the way he suffered. So, our first hint at what God is doing in the world. God sees this brokenness, sees the circumstances of the world, and he has a plan that has been the same from the very beginning before he spoke one molecule of this world into existence. He intended to send his son to redeem it and to make all things new. He would do that through sending his son, through Jesus, through his suffering. And so as we suffer, and we struggle in the brokenness of this world, we can know, we can begin to know and see that we have a Savior, we have a Messiah who is very aware of our suffering. He's very attentive to that. It's not something that is lost on him. And so he sends Jesus, and he does this to bring many of us, to bring sons and daughters to glory. This is why he would do it, and he would do that through suffering. How? Verse 11. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. For he who sanctifies and, who, and all who are sanctified all have one source. Not only does God come to the rescue in order to save us through Christ and to make us holy through his suffering, or excuse me, to uh, redeem us through his suffering and begin to make us new, but he also makes us holy. He makes us like himself through that. His salvation, the work of Jesus on the cross brings that to bear. That's why 1 Peter 1.16 says, You shall be holy for I am holy. It points to the work of Jesus was not simply to redeem us, to make us sons and daughters, but also as sons and daughters for us to reflect the Savior, to be holy as he is holy and to look like Jesus. Jesus is Big enough to save us. He is powerful enough because of who he is. And he's powerful enough to make us holy. This is why we don't strive. I just want to encourage you in this way. I know some of you get discouraged. I can find myself in this same type of discouragement. Trying to figure out some way to get over some sin issue in my life, something that I struggled with, some temptation, some challenge that I face over and over and over again. It just seems to kind of become a recurring theme in my life. The answer to that is not to just try harder because you won't find that to be successful. At least that's the testimony of my life. I can't just try harder to fix that issue. I can't just figure it out on my own. No, what I do is I look 
to Jesus, the foundation of my salvation. I keep my eye on him. And as I focus on him and what he has done, and I remember his love, his sacrifice, all that is involved in the person of who Jesus is, this idea of holiness and reflecting him begins to take place. And so as I walk with Christ, if some, sometimes you might say, well, Ryan, you, you know, you, you seem pretty holy. Well, as we just sang, it's all filthy rags, so don't get too caught up in that. But if there is a degree of holiness, it's because I've kept my eyes on Jesus. And as I've kept my eyes on Jesus, those things that at one point were valuable to me, those things that looked as temptations, Jesus has become greater and greater and greater where they have less impact on my life. There's less desire for those things. There's less temptation for those things. Not perfected, but it's less because my eyes are on Christ and Him alone. I had one good friend that he described this for me. It was perfect, just providential that I spent some time with him this weekend or this last week, and we shot guns. And uh, don't get too nervous. But we went to the shooting range, and he's an excellent marksman. And he was describing um, this idea. We were talking about this pursuit of holiness And he said to me, and and I know this to be true, but he says, when we're shooting, what do we look at? Where is the focus? Now, a novice shooter, if you've never shot anything before, you will say you look at the target, and that's actually not what you do. At the end of a weapon, there's a little front sight tip. It's a little bead of white. And you focus on that little bead, and you point that bead at the target, but the focus of my eye is on that little bead, and I place the bead on the target. If I look at the target, I'll rarely hit it. If I keep my eye on the front sight tip and just put it in the center, I'll hit the target. That is sanctification at work. I keep my eyes on Jesus. He's the front sight tip. And I point that at the target of holiness, but it's all because what he has done. It's what he is doing in my heart and life. And that creates this holiness and allows us to say, yes, Lord, I will pursue holiness, but it's not something that I do. It's pursuing Jesus. For he who sanctifies those who are sanctified all have one source, Jesus. This is why then he continues in verse 12 and 13. He describes now what happens as a result of what Jesus has done. He says, this is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Speaking there, Jesus is not ashamed to call those of us who have been made new in Christ, have put our faith in what Christ has done. He's not ashamed to call them brothers. We are created and called into the family of God. He quotes another piece of scripture. He says, I will tell you, or I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing praise, and again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. And this is an amazing thing that Jesus does. Not only does he save us, does he atone for our sins, and we're gonna, he's going to explain that even further, how that works, but he, he causes us and brings us into a, a degree of holiness where we are sanctified and growing in our reflection of Jesus, looking more and more like Jesus. But we are now called brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters of one another, but brothers and sisters of Christ. We are a part of the family of God. Let that sink in for a moment, friends. We are a part of the family of Almighty God. 
in all of our train wreckness, all of the issues that we bring to the table, we are still, we are called brothers and sisters. This is an amazing thing. It should cause our hearts to swell with just really marvel in the same way that the psalmist says, what is man that you are mindful of him? This awe that was inspired there, this idea that we could be called brothers and sisters of Christ. In verse 14, now further unpacking what Jesus has done and who he is now for us. Since therefore the children share the children, you and I, the brothers and sisters, the family of God, share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might d- destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. So he calls us through Christ. We are now called sons and daughters. We are called brothers and sisters of God. And we have been declared justified and now also holy, now part of the family of God. And we see that this is all secured through what Christ did as he shed his flesh and blood. And we see this relationship that we have with Christ. Jesus had to come and had to go to the cross because that was the only way for sin to be redeemed. He had to become like us in order to redeem us. As he became like us, taking on flesh and blood, that is what then allowed him to be the sacrifice that would be the final sacrifice, as we said in Hebrews chapter 1, that allowed him to then sit down at the right hand of the Father. On Easter Sunday morning, if you weren't with us, or if you were with us, you'll remember if you weren't with us, you didn't hear this. But what we see Jesus doing when he sits down at the right hand of the Father, by sitting down, God is saying, it's paid in full. Jesus said it is finished. And when he sat down at the right hand of the Father, the Father says, that propitiation, that atonement, that sacrifice on behalf of sin is acceptable and no longer do we have to make sacrifices for sin. And it was because Jesus came and took on flesh and blood and came to be like us. Why? That through him, he might destroy the one that has the power of death. Death is something that is universal. As one pastor once said, everyone will die. Not everyone will live. We are alive in Christ because of what Christ has done. And if we have put our faith in him, that death that once would cause fear in our hearts, would cause anxiousness, would cause us to lose hope as we see death ruling in the world, whether it's through the literal death and loss of friends, families, and loved ones, or just the brokenness, the decay of the world that we see all going on around us and all the challenges of this world. Now, death no longer has any rule. I don't know about you, but I don't find many people that say, yeah, everything's great. Everything's just moving along just swimmingly. This world is perfect. Does that ever, do you ever think that? Everything's just sunshine and roses. Man, there, there couldn't be anything better. No, all we see and all that you hear about is how broken and how challenging and how hard and how death seems to be ruling over this world. And here we see Jesus says, 
or the author of Hebrews says of Jesus that he came to be like us so that he could destroy the one who has power of death, that is the devil. Colossians 2.15 says this, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. If death does not rule, if you don't have to fear death, if it no longer has any hold over your life and the decisions that you make and the way that you live, what is there to fear? If death doesn't have any rule over us, then there is nothing that could have any rule over us. And Jesus disarmed all of the powers and authorities that would come against us, it says. Disarmed the devil. And 15 continues, and delivered all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. When we fear death, when that's our ultimate fear, when we fear then maybe perhaps less, maybe it's not just death, but sort of the tentacles of death and all of the ways that that influences us and all the fears and anxieties that come through us. What does he describe that to look like? It's as if we are enslaved to it. We become enslaved to it. We make decisions. We live our lives just trying to prevent that from happening. And Jesus came. And he came and he was like us, took on flesh and blood and went to a cross, laid down his life. Three days later, he took it up again to conquer sin and death, to say, no more, no longer do you have to fear that. That was Easter. That's why I say we are an Easter people. It's not just something we celebrate once a year. It's how we live our lives. We do not live in fear of death any longer because Jesus has conquered it once and for all. If we skip down, and I'll come back to 16 and 17, but another jump that we're going to make. In verse 18, he says that Jesus himself suffered when tempted. And because he suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus is a help to us. And he's a help to us because he's familiar. This is why, back to 16 and 17, for surely it is not to the angels that he helps, or it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. He helps mankind. Once again, this relationship between man and God is at, is at stake in what he is talking about. Therefore, he, Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Jesus became like us so that when he went to the cross to make the final sacrifice for sins, he would do so as the rightful propitiation for the sins of all of mankind. And he did that so that we would know we have a high priest who intercedes for us, who has interceded for us and has made a way for us to be restored back to our rightful place and relationship with God. Do you remember what the psalmist was marveling about in Psalm 8, in the garden? He was saying, how amazing is it that God is mindful of us? How amazing is it that, that God would have a purpose for us? How amazing is it that God would care for us? How amazing is it that God would place us in this, you know, in this world and give us rule over all of it? 
And he's amazed at all of those things. And in the psalmist's mind, when he writes those words, he's thinking about you and I living in creation. The author of Hebrews helps the psalmist along a little bit and helps us. When he says and asks the question, what is man that you are mindful of him? He asked the right question, but his answer was just too small. He was asking the question, what is man that you are mindful of him that you would give us rule over this? The author of Hebrews says, what is man that you are mindful of him that you would send your son to lay down your life for him? to be the rightful propitiation for sins. God gave us rule over creation. And what we can now say, as we read this psalm, we read this through the lens of Christ. And we say, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. That you made Jesus to come and humble himself even lower than the angels that were once perceived to rule over the world to come and lay down his life. And because he laid down his life, you have now crowned him with glory and honor. And you have put everything in subjection under his feet. And what Jesus has done, because he is that ruler and now is his brothers and sisters, the reason, you want to know why Jesus took the title of Son of Man? He was thinking of this psalm. That's why in the New Testament, if you go read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus refers to himself over and over and over again as the Son of Man. Because what he is telling us in those moments is, I came in order that I would restore you to your rightful place to rule over creation. And the hope for us, friends, the hope for our future is this. Revelation 21, John says, I saw the new heavens and the new earth and there was no longer any tears. There was no longer any suffering. There was no longer any pain. There was no longer any brokenness. But there was one who had authority to rule. And this tells us that we will rule over that new creation with Christ as co-heirs. And Jesus is restoring all of these things. And so, to that small little house church, to City Church in a little no-name town in North Texas, to brothers and sisters wherever you are in the world hearing this, Jesus is saying to you, I understand that there is suffering. I suffered. I suffered in your place. I understand that this world is broken, but trust me, I have come and I have conquered death. There is no longer any death that you have to fear. And one day there will be a new heavens and a new earth. And because of what I have done as my co-heirs, as brothers and sisters of Christ, you will return to your rule over creation as it was in the garden, as it was when God created. He will make all things new. He's done that. He has started that through Christ. And so we sit and we wait and we endure, but we endure with hope and with confidence because we have a high priest who is faithful. We have a high priest who made final propitiation for sin, final payment. It has been paid in full and God the Father says, sit down. And he says to all of us, press on. In the faith, believing, keeping your eye on Jesus, focused on Jesus. And one day, all things will be made new. What an amazing, as we are about to sing, friend we have in Jesus.
Thanks for listening to the preaching of God's Word at City Church Melissa. We meet Sunday mornings at 9 and 1045 a.m. at 2300 Vineyard Hill Lane, and we hope to see you there soon. City Church Melissa, for the glory of God and the good of the city.